Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, for the past couple of years, uh, Greenlight Guru, we've been working pretty closely with the joint biomedical engineering departments at the University of North Carolina and NC State. And this started with a connection with a guy by the name of Andrew DeMeo. You might have heard uh, a previous episode on the Global Medical Device podcast with Andrew, but really great opportunity you know, to try to help bridge the gap that I've seen and others have seen in the biomedical education. And that is, you know, learning about quality systems and design controls and risk, you know, all the things that medical device professionals need to know about in their day-to-day job. Why not bring some of that learning into the uh, university uh, educational setting? And and so UNC NC State has kind of been leading the charge. They've been pioneers in trying to do so and partnering with Greenlight Guru. And I had a chance to to meet with Devin Hubbard a few weeks ago. Devin is the teaching assistant professor at UNC NC State Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering. And when we met a few weeks ago, he said something about how Greenlight has really helped him be a better educator, especially around things around design controls and risk. And I thought, you know, wow, this would be awesome to have a further conversation and, and share that experience with all of you on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I'm pretty excited today. I know you all probably think that I say that this is an exciting episode every time uh, we do an episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. A little uh, hint, I get excited about this stuff. So for me, it's super exciting. But what I'm going to say today is special because I get to talk to Devin Hubbard. Devin is a teaching assistant professor at UNC, NC State Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering. So Devin, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Yeah, thanks. It's a real honor to be here. And I'm excited because you and I actually had, we've been working together for a bit. Uh, you know, some of those who've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast or maybe following along might have remembered a story a while back uh, with Andrew DeMeo. Andrew and I agreed a few years ago to sort of partner and explore something you know, with the, the biomedical program at, at UNC and NC State. And you have uh, picked up the torch and been running with it now for, I guess, about a year-ish or so. Yeah, and, right. and you and I had a chance to, to meet face-to-face a few weeks ago, and it was just fascinating. So I guess tell the folks a little bit about what you do and a little bit about... Because I, I think the, the fact that UNC and NC State, I mean, at least in my mind, I think of of those two schools as kind of fierce rivals, especially on the athletic fields. So how does it happen that, that two schools like that have a joint biomedical program? Yeah, let me talk about that a little bit. It's actually a really interesting program. So um, the UNC and NC State joint program has gone back. I mean, the history begins sort of in the 90s, but fast forwarding into the 2000s, the graduate program became joint sort of in the early 2000s. And the the reason I think it makes a lot of sense. So you know, the universities are just about 20 miles apart. And at NC State or North Carolina State University, we have the College of Engineering and we have a College of Veterinary Medicine, which is incredible. Both of them are really, really highly ranked. And over here at UNC, which is where my main office is, we have the School of Medicine, Pharmacy. And so we have sort of the medical sciences. Fast forwarding a little bit more in a couple years ago in the 2013, 
we became joint at the undergraduate level. And I think it makes sense at all of the sort of foundational levels to, to combine the two into a single program because of the resources at both campus. So the real play is that we have an incredible set of resources. We've got physicians in the UNC hospital network. We've got incredible engineers over at NC State. We've got an incredible College of Veterinary Medicine, School of Pharmacy. So it was really a play to help leverage all the resources and make them accessible to as many different people as possible. So, you know, all of the faculty members and students all the way down to the undergraduate level are essentially dual enrollees at both universities. So I'm appointed at both and all of my students who are undergrads they are also students at both universities and they have a shuttle. So it's really nice. They can travel and do research at both campuses. And I think where it gets interesting for us today is that it, uh, the design program is sort of now completely joint. So, and that's kind of where I come in. So my role, my primary role here in the department is that I help run the capstone design course, which we're going to be revamping in the coming years. But right now, what it looks like in the course that I teach, and I think for the audience listening, they may want to know, we have a two-semester long design sequence. And in the fall, our students are shadowing clinicians. We have a handful of large hospitals here in the Triangle. So UNC being one of those that we work with, and we work with several others. And our students go in and they shadow uh, for six to eight weeks in the fall. And during that, they're beginning their sort of four-phase design experience, and they're identifying unmet medical needs. We have physicians that have been on board with us for several years at this point, and they sort of understand how the process works. So our students are immersed in the clinic, and they are looking for unmet medical needs. They sort of come back. They start building their network. They begin brainstorming to invent a new idea. And then they move into sort of verification, validation, and implementation as the semester goes on and as the year goes on. And by the time they get to May, at the very end of it, they sort of have a gigantic symposium where we invite all their industry and clinical mentors and academic mentors to come see all the hard work that they've put in. And by that point, they typically have, or they're required to have, I should say, a proof of concept. The other interesting thing that I think is relevant for our conversation today is that we also run sort of a quality system in the background, and this is kind of where Greenlight comes in. So historically, and when Andrew was working with me prior to his departure to go work at Trig, he had implemented a design history file over on the NC State side of things. And so when I came on board about five years ago, we had a conversation that went kind of like this. Hey, these paper DHFs, they're a lot of work. <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we could move to something that was a little bit more manageable and easier to share across campuses? One of the reasons being to enable our teams to be joint. And the first year that I came on board, we had a joint team and we didn't really have a great way of tracking their progress. And so they actually had sort of separate DHFs and that sort of forced us into a position to start exploring the options. And I think that's kind of where the story with you and Andrew yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always have to go back to the memory banks to try to recall exactly how we got connected. And Devin, I don't know why, but for the life of me, I don't remember how exactly. And maybe it's uh, it's, it's a irrelevant point. I won't spend any more cognitive load, at least in this conversation on that. But yeah, we did talk a lot about, you know, he Andrew came from industry first before he was uh, teaching biomedical engineering. And I know one of the things that he was trying to do is is reduce the practice, so to speak, some concepts around like quality management system and design controls and a design history file and actually bring th those learnings into the classroom setting 
with undergrads and, and graduate students before those folks would enter into the workforce. And, you know, he shared stories about having a lot of, um, I'll say, quote, paper-based forms and templates that, that you know, and, and setting up, I don't know if he had SharePoint or Dropbox, but some some file tree structure that he had set up. And, he, you know, he talked a lot about how that was really a nightmare to try to maintain and manage on an ongoing basis. And, and it was helping to you know close the gap a little bit uh, as far as the theory versus the practice, but there was still quite a bit of gap there. And then you know in enters in comes Greenlight uh, into the equation, and you know he starts to play with it and, and starts to close that gap even further. And then this is where I, I think you've done a fantastic job of taking that torch, yeah, a little bit further and really you know solidifying how folks, uh, students that are learning how to be biomedical engineers. I mean, I, I, I've been uh, preaching this for a bit. I think it's really important for biomedical professionals to, to be knowledgeable and maybe even somewhat proficient with what a quality system is and what a regulatory strategy is and what design controls are and risk and so on and so forth. So I'm really glad to see that you and, and the students at UNC and NC State have embraced this notion as well. Yeah, it's been a really interesting learning experience. I've certainly learned a lot about it. And I think, you know, you and I spoke recently about this, but I think one of the things that it does for us is working with Greenlight and using the software really allows teaching the quality management system, well, I should say more broadly, sort of regulatory and risk analysis assessment and quality systems a lot easier, um, especially in the context of the sort of subtle links between design and document control and risk assessment, for example. And I can go into that for sure. You know, one thing that I should mention is, you know, up until recently, we just sort of told the students, like, here's how you're going to do it. And we never taught them, you know, what is a quality system? You know, what does it mean to keep document control and to keep design controls? What even are design controls? We never really, I wouldn't say we went into great detail on that, but I think one of the things that, at least from a, even just the visual layout of Greenlight allows a lot more connection building. I should say I haven't studied this, but my anecdotal observation is at least the students seem to be grasping the concepts a lot more deeply. Um, and so one example of that, and I think this is something that you and I have talked about recently, is the risk matrix. So one of the things that I've historically found a little challenging to implement is how you teach students who are going through the design process and, you know, think, you know, put yourselves in their, in their shoes. There's just students who have, you know, they're coming to the end of their college careers. They're still learning. They're, you know, they're working on implementing their skills. And now we're giving them this brand new management system that's requiring them to learn a whole new set of skills. And I think because of that, when risk assessment becomes abstracted from document control and from design control in a way that I think it's easy for a student to say, well, I'm just doing this for a homework assignment, check, 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 right? One thing that I think is nice about Greenlight, and there's many things, but this one in particular is, you know, if you go to your risk matrix, you can see how your design controls are linked to your risk assessment. So when I have a student or a student team who's going through and evaluating their product idea, we can go through their risk assessment and I can look at individual elements in their risk matrix. And let's say I pull a single harm out and say, well, this harm is of medium risk or the, the residual risk at the moment is medium. So let's take a look at what design controls you have in place to help 
manage this risk. And then that kind of draws that tangible connection so that I can say, you need to go back and add a design control. Or more importantly, they recognize that they need to go back and add a design control or a set of design controls for a particular risk. And up until this year, we haven't really used that as a tool. And this is the first time I'm seeing our students kind of have that click kind of aha moment where they recognize that risk assessment informs their design as much as their design informs their risk assessment, at least in the class. Well, I think more than the class, my strong personal opinion is that that's a distinction or, or connection that those of us in industry should also be making. And I think uh, like your students, this is a problem or a challenge that, that the medical device industries face. We, we look at oftentimes, unfortunately, the risk management or the risk assessment type of activities somewhat autonomously from design and development. And I think in large part that, that has been driven because uh, oftentimes, you know, you, you've got your risk spreadsheet that's over here and you've got your design control information that's over there. And there's no good way to connect these things. I mean, sometimes you get a little cute and you might write a macro or a hyperlink and things like that. But, you know, there's all sorts of problems with that. So that's one of the reasons, frankly, why we built that functionality within the Greenlight workflow is to, you know, connect the dots in a way that that's uh, meaningful and that, to your point, you know, risk can help drive better design or your design can make sure that you're, you're capturing things from a risk perspective. I always describe risk and design control. They're really the same coin. They're just two different sides. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but, but that's how I've kind of conceptualized it. I agree. And I think that I should full disclosure here, right? Like I've learned a lot of this on the job here. So my, my background is biochemistry and, and a researcher, right? So I spent a lot of time doing mechanical and electrical design and rapid prototyping before I came here. It was firmly in the pre-design history sort of space. So I think for me, even using the software has helped solidify the understanding and the relationship between, you know, um, risk assessment and risk in general and the design process. Um, and, you know, from an educational perspective as well, one thing that I appreciate about the Greenlight interface, in addition to the link between risk and design and document control, is just the layout of the design control matrix, right? So, again, this is a topic that I've had to teach before. So how do you teach students the design process? You know, so we use the Stanford Biodesign model and we sort of tweak it. But, but then you look at the FDA's waterfall diagram, right? And so you're telling students, well, follow this innovation process, which is pretty much an entrepreneurial process with sort of a twist with regulation and reimbursement tacked onto it. And then you show them the FDA's waterfall diagram and say, well, this is the design process that the FDA wants you to follow. That can be really difficult to connect. And they, again, are separated. And one of the things that I appreciate about the layout of green light capturing user needs all the way through validation in the matrix format is that when I go to teach that in my class, the link is much more apparent because the need finding exercise that they do at the beginning, for example, of the biodesign process, that is explicitly captured in the, the user needs, right? The output from that activity is the list of user needs for a given problem. And so that is something else that I think is I appreciate greatly about the format of the design control matrix. And then, you know, the addition of the link to the risk assessment component of things really, I think, helps, I don't know, make those subtle connections that, I mean, even earlier today, I was on the phone with a colleague and we were talking about this, you know, how 
it's difficult to teach this, the, the subtleties of the design and document control process, let alone the links between un, what, what some people might feel are unrelated areas like, you know, risk, which I, I totally agree with you is sort of just two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I want to dive into that a little deeper here in a moment. Folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking with Devin Hubbard. Uh, Devin is a teaching assistant professor at UNC-NC State Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering. And uh, we're talking a little bit about how uh, this program has adopted uh, the use of green light to enhance the biomedical uh, student learning with respect to things like quality systems and design controls and risk and document management and all these things that really are important and foundational to a medical device professional. I want to remind you while taking this this short break too that of course you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast and yeah we've done over a hundred episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hard to believe. Uh, You might not have realized that we also recently launched a brand new podcast. Yes, that's right. In addition to the Global Medical Device Podcast, we are now uh, featuring exciting episodes on the Greenlight Guru MedTech True Quality Stories. So you want to check that out as well. If you're listening to uh, the Global Medical Device Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or on the Greenlight blog, wherever it is that you're consuming it, go check out MedTech True Quality Stories. Some really exciting stories from um, C-suite executives and, and other med device professionals and their quest to bringing new products to market and, and hearing some real life stories and, and some of the challenges and trials and tribulations that these folks have faced in their quest for true quality. So go check that out. All right, I want to dive back in, Devin, to uh, talk a little bit more uh, about design control and and I want to you know kind of I guess peel back the layers a little bit. So you talk about traceability. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going to confess to you, and uh, maybe you already knew this, and and maybe those listening already knew this as well. Uh, the reason Greenlight actually started as a as a company over five and a half years ago, I was struggling as a project manager with this concept of traceability, not because I didn't know how to do it, uh, but the tools that that were out there were were they were they were poor at best. And in fact, I always resorted to a spreadsheet uh, because, frankly, at, at that moment in time, that was the best, most usable way to, to keep track of this. And traceability hit me front and center. Gosh, this was probably I was probably twenty three, twenty four, pretty new in the industry at that moment in time, and, and managing a device project, and we were trying to to achieve 510K clearance. And we were about a week away uh, from a 510K submission. And I decided, no one told me, there wasn't a requirement, wasn't even really um, known as a, a common practice at and that era. Granted, this was almost 20 years ago, but um, I decided to, to construct a traceability matrix, you know, figuring out what was connected, making sure that we had linked user needs and inputs and outputs and verification and validation. And in doing so, I found that I had some holes, if you will, in, in uh, information. And specifically, I was missing biocompatibility testing for a particular uh, material that was most definitely going to be required to support our 510K submission. And the fact that I had missed that about a week before a 510K, not a good experience because that meant that I, I had to go deliver bad news to my boss. That meant that the 510K was going to be delayed. It meant that you know, getting to market with this new product was going to be delayed. It also meant that 
that um, there was another $15,000 from a budget standpoint that we hadn't allocated in order to conduct that test. I wasn't ever going to make that mistake again. But over time, you know, over the next 15 or so years, 20 years or so, this spreadsheet to manage information, it breaks down eventually and becomes a challenge. The moment you publish a traceability matrix in a spreadsheet format, it's probably wrong. It's just too dynamic, especially at certain stages in development. So that's what drove the creation of Greenlight in the early days. And, you know, of course, we've continued to build functionality from, from then until now. But I love when you shared the other day that, you know, you used to teach the water, quote, waterfall diagram. And, you know, conceptually, students were, were not able to, to sort of connect the dots as to what this, why this was important. And then you talked about your experience with Greenlight. Can you maybe just elaborate on that just a little bit? I know you touched on it a few minutes ago. Yeah, okay. And I actually have another comment that follows up in your, your earlier discussion about traceability. I mean, you know, we ran into this issue with uh, traceability matrices where exactly what you were describing happens, you know, so dynamic, you can't keep track of it. And in a way, maybe university students are just a perfect test environment for these sorts of things because they'll, they'll break it really quickly, if that makes sense. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. It's just, you know, the, if, you, if a concept isn't explained exactly crystal clear, then implementing it will be a complete disaster in the classroom. And that, that's no different for the waterfall diagram. So, you know, in our case, it was sort of, an, I, I want to even say it was almost an afterthought, you know, like here's this thing you kind of need to know about. And that was a, as far as it kind of went. And, and the, the problem or the challenge for us was at the time, the way that our quality system and the documents that we were capturing and the information we were capturing was formatted in a way that, didn't really align well, if, if you ask me, with that design process that sort of follows the traditional waterfall diagram. And so when I described what, it, what a design review was, you know, from the FDA's perspective, but then turned around and said, oh, by the way, in a week you have a presentation, that's your design review, where you're going to stand up and essentially give a pitch. That's so different. And, and it, it kind of, I think just that, that disparity between the regulation and what we were actually doing was large enough that it didn't really solidify in the minds of our students much more than the, just the language. So beyond being able to say, Oh yeah, I know it. I know what the waterfall diagram is. I don't really know how to use it. You know, I want to say that it would have been a stretch to say that they could put that together. um, The design process with, the sort of regulatory pathways. Whereas now, you know, we've reformatted our documents a little bit, but in large part, it's a little easier with the visualization tools of Greenlight having to enter what the user needs are in the design control matrix. Uh, in the order in which they go, it's easy to see how a design review inside of Greenlight is different from what we would call sort of a design update now. We've changed the language um, a little bit. So I think that's that's the biggest change that we've made that helps harmonize that a little bit. I don't know if that, is that what kind of what you were getting you know, at? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely what I was getting at. And, mm-hmm. and I, I know it's a little bit anecdotal, but, mm-hmm. and obviously you have a strong opinion from the eyes of the professor, so to speak, but, but uh, I guess give a little bit of context. What are, what are some of the things you've been hearing from students? Yeah. So I think perhaps another important thing to think about is what we're hearing from the people who hire our students. Um, so first of all, you know, on the teaching end of things, 
a lot of what we used to hear was sort of, well, why are we doing this, right? Why, why am I recording all this paperwork, paperwork, paperwork? You know, it's really burdensome. And I think it does come back to the idea, I know you've spoken about it in previous podcasts, of instead of, like, instead of being reactive to regulation, it's best to sort of just be prepared at all times. And I totally appreciate that. And I think it's difficult to teach in the absence of a good tool for that. And for us, it's green light. Um, and, and to comment about what, what we see from our, the people that hire our students, you know, not knowing the language is great. You know, it gets you in the door for an interview and you can learn a lot on the job. But if we're helping our students prepare and really understand the implications of the entire design process and the regulatory infrastructure associated with that, it helps our students get into more positions. So I'll give some examples, right? Prior to implementing this, we rarely saw our students go into quality, at least not the one, at least the ones that hadn't been exposed to the design history file. In the last three years, I've seen, mm, I don't know if the percentage is accurate, but I've, a relatively high percent of our students will take quality or regulatory positions because they can speak the language. And oh, by the way, They've also worked with physicians in the hospital and can speak the language of medicine and they can also speak the language of engineering as well as regulatory and quality. So I think from, you know, the hiring perspective, you know, even this morning I was giving a recommendation for somebody and that came up in the conversation was, well, you know, we're really impressed with your student's ability to articulate their understanding of quality management systems and regulatory affairs and risk assessment. So I think, you know, what we're seeing from feedback for those that are going into industry and from the people that are hiring them is that understanding this process is not just some burden and checkbox that you have to do for a class, but as this is the way that we document what we do and it's just part of the whole process. I think it's lowered the sort of, I don't know how to describe it, maybe the busy work factor involved, if that makes sense, or at least the perception of it. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, because that's what that's what a lot of, um, well, not just med device professionals in general, but certainly engineers sometimes, I think, look at things as design controls and, and some of the, the things that they have to do to comply with their quality system as busy work. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a common, um, it's a common mindset for sure. Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is also interesting about biomedical engineering in particular, and I'm sure there's probably people who will disagree with me on this, but, you know, if you compare BME to something like uh, mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, you know, the foundation of a lot of what we teach in mechanical and electrical is, at the end of the day, safety for people. And I find it intriguing that that doesn't really crop up in the biomedical engineering curriculum yeah. in general, you know, and it's sort of like this, oh, by the way, you need to know about regulation. And that, that's sort of surprising to me in a way, because I think one of the defining factors that goes into, you know, mechanical, electrical, you know, the sort of what we would call traditional sort of hard technical engineering majors is, is that the, the regulatory, well, maybe not the regulatory, but certainly the safety and risk components are or just baked into the curriculum. Like you, maybe you're taking a statics course and learning about the failure of a design because of a material selection. And, you know, that's, that's important in medical devices just as it is in designing a bridge. And yet I would say that, you know, in my experience, at least in biomedical engineering programs, that is sort of, it's not explicitly tied to the material, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely makes sense. I mean, it, as you're describing some of the, um, and I, I love what you've shared about the, the, the UNC NC State program, because, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't technically have a biomedical uh, undergrad. I actually am a chemical engineer uh, by degree, but I took some biomedical engineering courses, you know, back in the late nineties. And, and I had some friends that took some too, but, but uh, I would say as far as the courses that we were taking uh, and, and that being really applicable to uh, being a medical device professional, product development engineer, what have you, uh, there was there was a big delta between what was being taught and what was being expected in practice. But what I love about your program is that uh, you've you've closed that that bridge or you you built a bridge and closed that gap a great deal. I mean, the experiences that your students are getting, I mean, they're, they're pretty comparable to what uh, certainly an entry-level position is going to, to be exposed to. So your students uh, will have an advantage, I think. Yeah, and I think one, one additional advantage to our setting, right, is that because we're in a university setting, I mean, even on the first day of class, I say, look, everyone here, this is your, one of your last opportunities, if not your last opportunity to try wild things and fail in a safe environment, right? So one advantage that I think we gain just being in a university setting and teaching design the way that we teach it is our students have the opportunity to learn this once, make a bunch of mistakes, and when they leave here and get hired, they're that much further along in the process. And instead of, you know, you know instead of making a large mistake when they when they get to where they're going, their mistakes will likely be a little more subtle. At least that's the hope. Well, I mean, unless you, engineers are going to, well, everyone's going to make mistakes. You're, it's human, but it's, it's the, it's the mistakes in, um, you know, like we said a moment ago about, you know, keeping the focus on, on improving, you know, patient safety and quality of life. I mean, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. a little bit about what you said. I think the sooner that, that we as medical device professionals can start to wrap our heads around how important that is. I mean, I got into to a medical, uh, the medical device industry Mostly because I needed a job, uh, quite frankly, <laughs> back uh, you know twenty some years ago, I hadn't really wrapped my head around you know the bigger uh, objective, the bigger mission, that the things that I'm going to do as a medical device professional are going to have an impact on humanity. So hopefully, it's a good impact and not a bad impact. So I think the fact that you're pulling that into the the uh, educational environment is huge, huge. Yeah, I think your point is exactly right. You know, at the end of the day, what our students, you know, if you ask our students why they chose biomedical engineering, most of them say, well, I just want to help people. At least that's the most common response that we hear. It's, you know, oh, yeah. And also, by the way, it's it's a really fun career, right? Most of them are, are saying we want to help people. And to do so safely is an important factor. It's, it's you know the most important factor that goes into getting your device approved for use, and so um, that's kind of the mentality that I think Greenlight helps us back up. Right? Is we can say, well, here's how you demonstrate that for this indicated use that you've appropriately documented and taken all the necessary steps to ensure that you're ready to show that your device is safe and effective or at least as safe and effective yeah. as other device, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Devin, I know that you and I could talk uh, for the rest of the afternoon <laughs> yeah, and have a great time. But, you know, I kind of put a wrapper on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. You know, what are maybe a couple of tips or pointers or suggestions or, or things that you want our listeners to, to think about or consider? Sure. Yeah. I mean, for those of you that are medical device innovators and especially those that are teaching medical device innovation, I think I would recommend thinking about uh, quality management and quality management systems in your course. I think it helps prepare the students for a career in industry. In particular, Greenlight, you guys have been really helpful to work with. Um, and I, I know that you're working with other universities as well. And I think that the, the layout of Greenlight happens to be such that it makes teaching some of the very difficult concepts very tangible and easy um, in a way that I want to say is akin to learning SolidWorks if you're an engineer or AutoCAD, right? I think for the people that are in industry that are hiring our students, um, there's also something to be said that maybe we need to improve our communication between universities and industry in a way that helps make sure that we close the feedback loop to our students. You know, one thing that is important to me is that I'm teaching skills that are relevant to the students that are leaving to go to industry as well as medicine and in and, and graduate school. And I think to have that loop closed, I think there's a little way to go yet. And so knowing what you all want is helpful to us and knowing that our students are prepared for this sort of thing, I think may be valuable to you. So those are the two sort of big things that I can think of that I would want the listeners of this episode to take away. And most certainly the importance of understanding the link between traceability, design control, document control, and risk assessment. Uh, and the tool of Greenlight is an extremely valuable one for teaching that. Well, th those are really kind words. And Devin, I guess for those who might be listening who are looking to hire biomedical engineers into the workforce, give us a little bit of an idea. How many engineering students are, are graduating from your program every year? Yeah, so at our program, we have 80 students per campus per year. So that's 160 that are graduating from our program, and all of them go through our design curriculum. So we have four semesters of design. And, you know, if we break the percentages down, you know, just over half of them are going into industry. So we have a very, we have about 80 students that are incredible. You know, I kind of joke with the people outside this university in a way, because biomedical engineering is one of the most high demand majors at both campuses, and because both campuses already attract some of the best students in the state and in the world, we end up with the best of the best students at these universities. And so in a way, it makes my job easy. But for the folks that are looking to hire, I mean, it's you guys, it's a gold mine. Seriously, we have yeah. really incredible students that come through. Yeah. And, and folks, uh, I've had a chance to to at least from a distance see and, and, and be a little bit tangentially involved in in the syllabus and the of the curriculum it, it's top notch uh the students coming out of this program uh, they they're coming out you know with quite a bit of a really hands-on tangible experience that will make their transition into your uh, medical device company uh, much quicker than maybe a, a traditional engineering graduate so it's certainly uh, worth considering UNC NC State if you're looking for biomedical engineers and you know Devin I, I'll uh, include your details and information and I'm sure that you can get 
uh, folks that might be interested in, in talking to some of your students. I'm sure you'll get them pointed in the right direction. Folks, I want to thank Devin Hubbard. Again, Devin is teaching assistant professor at UNC NC State Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering. And uh, really love having this opportunity to chat with you on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.